This morning for our scripture reading, we will be uh, reading from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 24. If you're using a Bible in a chair rack in front of you, that should be on page 522. Psalm 139, starting at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, my God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank you, Andrew. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we humbly bow before you, thankful that you are the creator of life and that what you've done is good. We're thankful that you know all that there is to know about us. You know what we need. We're also thankful that you speak. And even now as we open up your word, we ask that you would speak to us clearly from your word. We're thankful for all of your word, those parts that are comforting and easy to hear, but those parts that are hard to hear, but we need to hear as well. We're thankful that you, you know us and you speak to us so that we can know you and worship you. So help me as... I uh, preach and teach your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would enable me to say what your word says. And I pray, Father, that you would give all of us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. And we'll thank you for the way that you work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, the first six verses will be our sermon text for this morning. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that one of my highlights from our trip to Israel was being in the city of Nazareth at a historic, historic village sitting in a model synagogue. And our tour guide quoted Jesus' words from the scroll of Isaiah that's found in Luke 4. And in that text, we learn very clearly that Jesus says that he fulfilled 
what Isaiah 61.2 promised, namely, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor with his coming. And chapters 61 and 62 of Isaiah then reveal the many aspects of the Lord's favor that were promised, such as in Christ there is good news for those who are poor in spirit. There is liberty for those captive to sin. There is comfort for the brokenhearted. There is lasting joy for those troubled with heartache. And and there are righteous garments of salvation provided by the Lord through the eternal covenant that was established with the shed blood of Jesus. This promised year of favor is all God's grace. It is unmerited favor. This this promised year of favor is his work to make you a tall, strong, stable, enduring oak of righteousness, a, a planting of the Lord. It's his work, and it's for your good, and it's for his glory. It, it is the year of the Lord's favor. But Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2 also promises not just the year of the Lord's favor, but promises the day of God's vengeance. Um, And the symbol of God's vengeance or wrath found here in Isaiah 63 is really quite graphic. We, We see it here, and it's picked up again in Revelation 14 and Revelation 19, but it is the winepress of God's wrath. It's Garments spattered with blood from executing judgment. So yes, God is love, but also it's important to know that God is wrath. God saves, but God also judges. As one commentator has said, God's mercy and God's wrath stand not in contradiction, but in union with one another. There there is no salvation without just judgment, and the cross of Christ illustrates both God's love and God's wrath. Now, we spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks detailing the, the many beautiful things about how God delights in those he saves, and those are truths that we love to hear, and I love to preach. But as we come to chapter 63, the subject of God's just wrath bursts onto the scene almost as quickly as the judgment itself will in the future. So today we're going to talk about the Lord's promised vengeance or his promised wrath. Now, before we do that, it's important for you to recognize where you get your theology uh, what, what is it that most influences your view of God? Pulp, uh, pop culture certainly doesn't have much interest in developing a view of God based upon the whole counsel of God's word. It's certainly not interested in understanding the wrath of God. 
Neither are many seeker-friendly churches. If, if your chief desire is to feel good about yourself, you will not want to hear about the promised vengeance of God. And quite honestly, if I handpicked my favorite Bible passages to preach, I'd most likely pick all of my favorite passages that speak about God's mercy and love and grace. And there certainly are plenty of those. But there are also many other passages that speak about God's judgment. D.A. Carson says Jesus spoke twice as much on hell as he did heaven. And so one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I am committed to expository preaching, that is, preaching through a book of the Bible, one sentence and paragraph at a time, is that it gives us a balanced diet of God's word. It, it forces me to preach the hard passages and not just my favorites. It allows us to hear all of what God reveals to us through his word. God, God wants you to hear about his love. God also wants you to hear about his wrath. Both are important because God is both love and wrath. So I say to you this morning as we turn to Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3, please hear that the Lord has promised vengeance. This, this is what God has revealed, and it's important for you to hear and to understand. In chapter 62, the Lord had told us that he would put watchmen at the city to watch for his coming salvation a sense of anticipation. Ch chapter 62 ends pregnant with hope of God's salvation. But as we come to verse 1 of chapter 63, there, there is an unexpected situation which forces a question to be asked. And I think it is a question asked by one of these watchmen on the city wall. So, so here is the watchman's question, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now, verse 3 will tell us that the person coming uh, has crimson garments because they're spattered with the lifeblood of the people he has trampled on in his wrath. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But notice that this one coming to the city is also splendid in his apparel. It doesn't sound much like a common soldier. It sounds more like a warrior king. In fact, I think it is the Lord's perfect servant, or as we see in this section of Isaiah, it's the Lord's anointed conqueror. We are told he's marching in the greatness of his strength. Uh, in a minute, we'll hear more about what he is coming from. But here, we know that whatever he comes from, he's not coming in defeat. He's not beaten down and hopeless. He comes in splendid apparel, and he's marching. He's not limping. He's marching in the greatness of his strength. Well, it, it makes me want, want to find out what he's been up to. But... First, what, what is the significance of Edom being mentioned here? Basra is mentioned because it's the capital of Edom, but who, who is Edom? 
Well, Edom and its people have their roots in Esau. Uh, Esau was a twin brother of Jacob, born to Isaac and Rebekah. And after the birth, the Lord revealed that the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. And Esau, if you remember, was noted for his foolishness. In particular, it was Esau who foolishly gave up his birthright just to get a meal to fill his belly quickly after he had arrived home from a hunting trip. But it was also Esau, or Edom, as he became known, who lost Alan his father's blessing. And this made Esau very angry. He, He was so angry that he plotted how he would kill his brother Jacob after his father Isaac had died. Also fueled by his anger, Esau married a foreigner just because he knew that it would irritate his his father. And so Edom spoken of here in verse 1 is, first of all, an unbelieving people located southeast of Jerusalem. But they are also a people who have come to typify a world that has contempt for the promises of God. I think that's the key. It It was of Edom that the Lord said in Malachi 1, 3, and 4, I have laid waste this hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So, with that in mind, think again about verse 1 of Isaiah 63. Here here is one coming from Edom, coming from a people who have nothing but hatred for God. And he's dressed in crimson garments, garments which are spattered with the blood of people who are trampled by the wrath of God, but who is also splendid in his apparel and marching in the greatness of his strength. I mean, what a sight that must have been. You can understand why the watchman who was looking for God's coming salvation would ask the question, who is this one coming? And without hesitation, the Lord's anointed conqueror answers. He says in the latter half of verse 1, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So this, in fact, is what the watchman was looking for. One who is speaking in righteousness and who is mighty to save. Uh, don't, don't miss the fact that God speaks. You, you and I would never make sense of the world that we live in. We would never make sense of our own lives if God did not speak. God speaks, um, revealing himself and revealing what we need to know to make sense of life. That's why we have to be people who listen to him speak through his word, to listen to all of what he says, not just our favorite parts. So here the watchman was looking for the righteous one who would come, the one who would be mighty to save, and he, he was eager for that. But when he saw the Lord's anointed conqueror coming, dressed the way that he was, looking the way that he was, he, he was a bit confused, which led to the watchman's second question. What? 
why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? So that's the million dollar question. If you speak in righteousness and if you are mighty to save, splendid in apparel and marching in the greatness of your strength, why do your clothes look like those of a person who stomps in a wine press? You've, you've probably seen some of those pictures yourself. The, the harvest of grapes has finally come in. They are brought to the vat or to the wine press and people will take off their shoes and their sandals and they'll stomp on the grapes in their bare feet. And they do that in bare feet not to crush the seeds which would make the, the juice or the wine have a bitter taste. But, but often that was a community project. Many people would jump into the wine press or the vat in a spirit of celebration and they would stomp the juice out of the grapes. And when that happened, the juice of the grape would stain everything that it touched. And in the process, the juice from the grape would cover those that were in the wine press from head to toe. So that, that was the appearance of the Lord's anointed conqueror, spattered in blood, yet speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. But why was he spattered in blood? Well, the Lord's anointed conqueror answers in verses 3 through 6. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and I stained all of my apparel, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their blood on the earth. He, he was in the wine press alone. Five, five times... In these short verses, the Lord's anointed conqueror tells us he did this alone. It's clearly a point of emphasis here. He was appalled that he was alone. No one was with him. There was no one to help. Earlier in Isaiah, chapter 59, verses 15 through 19, we learned that there was no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who conformed to God's will. And so, in that passage, we're told that it would be the Lord himself who provides one righteous to save and one righteous who would passionately defend the glory of God. And that's what we see here in chapter 63. Jesus is the one righteous. He speaks in righteousness, and it is him alone who can save and will judge. Now, we, we sing about this truth often here at Grace Hill. Revelation 5 says this, and as I read this passage, you will recognize the truth that we affirm when we sing, is he worthy? Um, in, in John's vision of the throne room of God, we read this in Revelation 5, 2 through 5. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And and in that scene, they proceeded to worship the one who had conquered and the one who indeed alone is worthy of worship. Jesus alone is worthy to save. He is alone worthy to open the seals of God's judgment. And that is what the winepress of God's wrath indicates. He says in verse 3, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. He also states in verse 3, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. And in verse 6, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So the, the mention of blood here speaks of death, which is God's judgment upon the people. Je- Jesus, in his righteousness, executes judgment against the enemies of God when he pours out his anger and wrath. Uh, Revelation 14, uh, verse 19 and 20, says it like this. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered a great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. In other words, the, the judgment would be very great. It would be terrible. Many would face the just judgment of God. Uh, Revelation 19.11 and verse 15 say it like this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So, so this is what the Lord has promised This is what is yet to come when Jesus comes again. And so I think one of the questions we have to ask is this, on whom does the Lord promise his wrath to come upon? Who who is deserving of his just and righteous wrath? Who, Who deserves to be trampled on in the winepress of God's just and righteous wrath. And the, the short answer is this. All of us, all people are born into the world deserving God's wrath because of the guilt of Adam. Remember, Adam 
willfully disobeyed God, thinking more of what he wanted than what God commanded. And all of us willfully and willingly followed after the course of this world. We, we willingly took our stand against God. We all lived under the influence of the evil one, and all of us followed after the desire of our own sinful flesh. We were all deserving objects of God's wrath. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 teaches us. Romans 1.18 says that God's wrath is and will be revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2.5 says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.8 says, But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6 say, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This truth is meant to bring great conviction upon the hearts of sinners. Because no sinner will escape the wrath of God when Jesus comes again. All, all people are objects of God's wrath. There, there is a day coming when the Lord will pour out his wrath and judgment on sinners just as he has promised. It will be a terrible day. This truth should cut sinners to the heart and cause, cause sinners to cry out to God for mercy. This truth is also meant to lead sinners to the Savior, to Jesus, who went to the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath in full for all who repent and believe the gospel. There is only one way to escape the wrath of God when Jesus comes again. One way. It's when you look to Jesus confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and turning to Jesus, trusting in him alone for your salvation. The, the, the truth is this, on the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross, he, he absorbed all of the wrath of God in your place. He absorbed all of the wrath for all those who repent and believe in him. When, when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you, God's justice was satisfied and you're forgiven. That, that is good news. Jesus came to save and 
He will also come again to pour out God's wrath on those who continue in their sin and unbelief and refuse to repent and believe the gospel. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So please hear that the Lord promises a day of vengeance. A day of vengeance is coming. He also wants you to know along with that, he, he, he gives us opportunities to understand the Lord's reasons for his promised vengeance. And I want to mention three things this morning. One God wants you to understand that there is a day of vengeance coming so that those who are those of, of who are his children, those who are trust, who've repented and put their faith in Jesus, can be find comfort. There's comfort for the afflicted. Verse 4 says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Chapter 61 verse 2 also spoke of the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's vengeance together. In both of these places, the year of redemption was coupled with the day of vengeance. So why is that? I think it was meant to comfort those afflicted for righteousness sake. When, when you love God, the world will hate you. Jesus prepared us for that. God understands that. There is often a price to pay for following Jesus and loving righteousness. The, the price is often persecution, and it comes in many forms, but it comes, and it's coming today in this country more often than ever. So how can the day of vengeance be a comfort to God's people? Well, in this way, it, it often seems like the bad guy always wins. It, it often seems like those who delight in evil never get caught. Our hearts long for justice, and it often feels like justice is never served. Well, the truth of the matter is is this, a day of justice is coming. A, a day of vengeance will come when everyone will give an account to God for what they have done. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians 1 that when God's people are mistreated and sinned against, God sees that and God cares about that. In fact, he promises to afflict those who afflict you. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those are sobering words. Knowing that God sees and God cares when you are afflicted by evil men and and promises justice when Jesus comes again ought to embolden your faith so that you persevere in the faith even when you endure suffering in this lifetime. A, A day of vengeance is coming. But some people might ask, am I just supposed to be a doormat as I live in this life? Should I just take it and keep my mouth shut? And I would say, no. God wants you to fight back in this age with the weapons that he provides. One of the things is God's ordained the government with the authority to stop the evildoer. But the government is often corrupt and fails to do their God-given task, and they too will give an account to God. But even if they fail, you are not without hope. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. It says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So those are our marching orders in this age. Don't, Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by doing good. And we do this knowing that a day of vengeance is coming. We leave room for God's wrath. God will act. He will avenge. That's his role. Our role in this age is to not be overcome by evil, but to fight back by returning good for evil. Secondly, God promises that a day of vengeance is coming to call the wicked to repentance. You'll remember that God called Noah to build an ark to escape the coming judgment, but in the time that it took to for him to build the ark, Noah was also called to preach and to call people to repentance. Uh, Peter mentions that in 2 Peter 3, and then he says this in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So I God does not delight in people perishing in their sin. He he doesn't delight in that. If if they do perish in their sin, it will be because of their stubborn stubborn refusal to repent. Because God will give all people an opportunity to repent. And, 
And in truth, if it were not for the mercy and the grace of God that sovereignly was poured out into our lives, into my life, when even when I was dead in my sin, I would still be persisting in my sin and unbelief. But the point here is this, God gives all people an opportunity to repent. And the preaching of the gospel to the nations and the preaching of the coming judgment is meant to give people an opportunity to repent. Today, um, our church is remembering Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, it grieves my heart beyond measure to think about the fact that the United States of America has legalized abortion. This is utter wickedness and evil. These laws or these court rulings must change. Righteousness must be embraced by those governing officials responsible before God to do good, to do righteousness, and to punish evildoers. Isaiah 63 makes it clear that unless people repent, God's vengeance will be poured out on those who persist in the killing of evil babies in the mother's wombs. God's justice will be served. But I also pray that those responsible in our government for promoting the killing of babies in mothers' wombs will, will not face the wrath of God, but instead will face the mercy of Jesus when they repent of their evil and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. I, I pray too for those men who pressure their wives or girlfriends to have an abortion. And, and I pray, too, for those women who willingly choose to end the life of a baby that God has given to them in their womb. God, God's wrath will be terrible for the one who does not repent. But I also want you to know that God stands ready. God stands ready to forgive and to restore the one who repents and believes the gospel. One final note. When, when we hear and understand that when we hear and understand that the Lord promises a day of vengeance that is coming. It gives us an opportunity to exalt the justice of our righteous God. In chapter 18 of Revelation, we, we learn that the great prostitute Babylon, which symbolizes all people who have committed spiritual adultery against God by loving this world and all that it has to offer more than God. This great city Babylon will face the wrath of God when Jesus comes again. 
That's what we learn in Revelation 18. And then when we turn to Revelation 19 in the very first verse, we read this. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his just judgments are true For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. The book of Revelation makes it crystal clear God wins, Satan loses, sin and death will be defeated through. Jesus the Christ, God's anointed conquering king. And that is reason for us to worship. God's redeemed people will respond in worship because of God's judgments, which are true and just. I I would say to you today, don't Don't be on the wrong side of history. Let's pray together. Father, it is sobering to consider this text and these truths. It's sobering because... I know that I, des- I deserved your wrath, and yet you, you chose to pour out your favor, your mercy, your love on me through Jesus. And today I stand before you, not in my righteousness, but I stand before you in the righteousness of Jesus. It, it's your work. It's for my good. It's for your glory. And I just praise you and I thank you. Father, it's also sobering because we, we live in a world that stands against you. And those of us who have been given eyes to see your glory have been charged by you. And we bear the responsibility to be heralds of the truth, to be preachers of the gospel, to to warn people of the coming judgment and point people to Jesus, the only one who can, the the only way to escape judgment, the only way to be restored to a right relationship with you. And so, Father, I do pray that you would cause us as a church to be passionate for your glory and to be compassionate for those who are still enslaved to their sin and unbelief. And I pray that you would give us boldness and empowerment by your spirit 
to make known the good news of Jesus. So, Father, help us to do that. I do pray for this country. I do pray, as Tim prayed early, for the leaders who are responsible for making righteous laws and who will give an account to you. And we pray that you would be merciful in the way that you work so that the hearts of people would be moved to tear down wicked, evil, unrighteous laws and to uphold what you say is good. Help us to be a nation that values God-given life. Help us as a people to value life that you have given, image bearers of you. So, Father, in this sobering text, I pray that you would stir our hearts to be passionate for your glory, but to be compassionate for the needs of people who are all around us. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.